0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Is it too, uh, too early to say Merry Christmas, or is that allowed? Merry Christmas. Uh, hey, uh, for the, the, next, the next month, I wanted to just dive into Christmas as the church all over, uh, at least all over the country, is, is doing together in this Advent season, um, And what I wanted to do is look at specific texts in the Bible that shine a light on the Christmas season for this reason. Many people know when Christmas is, but some people don't know why Christmas is. And I want us to get to the why, so that our hearts could be opened in worship and in response to the God who came to save. And so every week leading up to Christmas Eve, we're just going to look at a text that shows a reason why Jesus came and why he was born uh, for the next three weeks leading up to, as, as Stan just shared, until Christmas Eve uh, when, we will, uh, when we will come together and worship. But today I just wanted to start, and you can actually turn there right now to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 21 in a little mini-series just to close out the year, a month of Christmas here at Reality. This is a well-known text. I'm going to read it and highlight a few, pa- uh, a few phrases in it about why Jesus came and why it should matter for you and for me. And I hope that at the end of it, uh, you'll be stirred to wonder and awe, but also loving response uh, to God. So as you're, turn, uh, as you're turning there, I'm just going to start us off in prayer, and then I'll read the text, and we'll get started. We just uh, thank you together, Lord, for the gift that Christmas is, all that it entails and symbolizes and focuses our eyes on, that is the Son of the Living God. We choose today to remember Christ, and not just to remember you as a distant memory 2,000 years ago, but as a living truth, alive and present with the church today. And I pray that as we, we read your word and we encounter you in your word, it would, be for that, uh, it would be for us that very thing, an encounter with the living God. Thrill our hearts, Lord. Stir our affections, calm down our anxious thoughts, and awaken in us one more time a sense of wonder and awe that the God of the universe would put on flesh and dwell among us. Show us what it means for us today, and as you do, Holy Spirit, so well. And the only way that you can speak prophetically to each and every one of us, what you would have us leave this building with. We, we ask for a word from the Lord, and not just a word from a preacher, but, but a word from the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you are not only alive and active, but you speak. We worship a God who is present and active and alive and loud. So be loud today. Be loud about yourself. Put Yourself on display, that the rest of us might kneel down before You, cast our crowns before the rightful King of the earth, and give You the praise and worship that is due Your name. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. I'm going to read the whole thing. It says this. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of the Lord. We are now embarking on, and for some of you who are like this, you started in October, maybe November, embarking on one of the most popular and beloved holidays in our culture and in our society. And not just one that is beloved by the religious and the church going, but even by the secular, even by the irreligious. This is a holiday that is vastly. Uh, uh, expressed and enjoyed and celebrated, not by everybody, but by a lot of people of very many different persuasions. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that people that don't follow Jesus and maybe aren't churchgoers get to experience and enjoy some of the things about a certain part of the gospel story that is so endearing to us. Things like family and food and Uh, Even things like presence and getting together and all of those activities and uh, uh, things of the heart that seem to emerge at this time of the year. Peace and harmony and love and relationship. I love that the rest of our culture and society gets to experience and enjoy that. I also wonder about the story itself that even though you can walk through a grocery store or a shopping mall and hear and see elements of the Christmas story without any religious attachment to it at all, that there is a sense in it that if you listen a little more closely, it's perhaps a little more of a disturbing story than we thought. I love that Christmas is so festive and so inclusive feeling, and so celebratory, and so universal to some degree. But it's not just festive, is it? It can be that if you don't listen. But if you start paying attention, you see that there are these subtle suggestions within the story that something is deeply wrong, wrong with us. It's the darker side of Christmas, so to speak. For example, just take take Christmas carols. Something that you hear all over Santa Barbara, regardless of where you happen to be. And many of them seem harmless at first sight or at first glance, until you begin paying attention. I'm thinking of uh, "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel." And when I get to that line that says that these people mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Perhaps if you don't know what that means, you're asking, well, in exile from what? Or the first Noel, and the line that says that he that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. And perhaps you're left wondering... What has he purchased us from and why the need for blood doesn't sound very Christmassy. And then you get into some of the most popular Christmas carols of all time. Oh, Holy Night, which you might hear in Nordstrom as you're shopping for shoes. And it's pretty harmless until you get to lines like this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Perhaps that makes you ask, if you go in this far in your investigation, did my soul not have the same sense of worth before Jesus came? And what is this talk of sin and error? I thought we were all basically good. Or hark the herald angel sing in the line, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. And perhaps you're asking, reconciled from what? Saved from what? Bought from what? Exiled from what? When you listen closely, and I'm just picking on the songs, there's so much symbolism inherent in the Christmas story, but just in the songs themselves... You see that they're not merely festive. All of them, the good ones at least, are alluding to salvation. They're alluding and heavily suggesting, no, I should say asserting, that there is a need for all of us to be saved from something. We're left asking, from what? And that's what all of the Christmas accounts in the Bible say quite vividly. This is where the Christmas carols get their script from, including the one that we just read. And it starts in as harmless a sounding a line as it may appear, the naming of Jesus. The angel tells Mary and Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, and right there, are already the hints and the suggestions and the assertions and the underlying mentality and assumption that there's something wrong that we need to be saved from. You know what Jesus means? It comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves. And perhaps you hear that and you're asking the same question. Saved from what? It's interesting that thousands of years after many books in the Old Testament have been written, many different Old Testament exploits and battles and victories and heroes, we're still getting a message that says, you still need to be saved. We just finished a book together as a church. We went through the book of Joshua which was all about the exploits and battles and heroism, I think, of a guy named Joshua and his tribe Israel, attempting to experience the promises of God. And thousands of years after that, we're still being told, Yahweh saves. It's as if the, the, the narrative of Christmas is suggesting that everybody who came prior, including Joshua, we're good, they just weren't enough. And isn't that our tendency when we read stories in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, about David and Joshua and Moses and Abraham and Ruth and Esther, as these, we, we portray and project them as these incredible heroes of the faith, that if we could just emulate them, we could experience the blessing too. Which is always awkward when we read within every single one of those stories how faulty and flawed these supposed heroes are. I don't think the Old Testament was poising them up as heroes to emulate. Although to to some extent, Hebrews 12 tells us that since we are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, we should also run the race set before us with endurance. But, it would go on to say fixing our eyes on somebody else. These are not moral stories for us to adopt in order to win our own salvation and to get us out of the mess. The underlying story throughout all of these little stories in the Old Testament is that these were good people that God used, but ultimately God was the faithful one and none of them were good enough, including Joshua. Joshua. At best, Joshua's progress and his failures were there to point us to something or someone else. This underlying tension through all of the Old Testament is that we actually need a better Joshua. And I'm not making that up. The author of Hebrews would say something very similar. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8 through 9, he says, if Joshua had pulled this off, If Joshua had given God's people rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He did some good things and he did some bad things, but like all of those Old Testament characters and some of the New Testament characters, it just wasn't good enough. Nobody is that powerful to save the human race. Or to save even themselves. It's fascinating that the word Jesus and the word Joshua are actually from the same Hebrew root, Yeshua or uh, uh, Yahushua. These are the same name. Joshua means Yahweh saves, Jesus also means Yahweh saves. And he comes in on the scene as if to suggest no one up until this point has saved anybody. What makes this second Joshua different than the one who came first, what makes this Jesus different than all of the characters who came before him, is that he comes from a different place. The angel said, That which is conceived in Mary is not from Joseph. It's from the Holy Spirit. Meaning that this is a person who has divine origins. It is God himself. The human condition, the, the assumption here is that the human condition is so broken and in need of intervention that no human being can pull them out of the mess that they're in. God himself must intervene. There's the old saying that goes, if, you can't, uh, if the job doesn't get done the first time, you've got to do it yourself. And so instead of raising up another person from the earth... God comes down to the earth and takes on the form of man. This is, in my opinion, one of the greatest miracles in all of the Bible. And there's a lot, right? The raising of the dead, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, the parting of the Red Sea, the crumbling of walls. We could go on and on and on. All of those are miraculous. But if there's a God, I would expect that those things, those types of things, wouldn't be hard for a God who is eternal and all-powerful. But when we speak about Christmas, about God being born, we're talking about something entirely more mysterious. It might be hard for us to wrap our minds around it initially, but we understand this type of thing. Ever watch that reality show called Underboss? It's a a show about how CEO executives go undercover without anyone knowing and take on menial tasks in their own company without anybody knowing in order to improve the state of things, but also to congratulate and encourage people who are doing a good job. As you watch this show, you have this top executive condescending, lowering himself to do menial tasks. He's often or she is often being berated or rushed or corrected by people that they are employing and they're taking it. At the end of one episode, This uh, particular CEO of a large franchise reveals his identity. And some of the workers there break out into tears. From the sense that the boss would lower himself to my level in order to help me and still speak kindly about me. There's something perhaps within us all when something of that nature happens. And yet, even in an experience like that, there's still two similarities. The CEO and the employee are both human. What we're speaking about here is entirely different and transcendent. This is a God who is eternal and all-powerful and all-aware. There is no place in the universe where His presence is not. He's omniscient, we would say. And yet, He puts on the limitations of human beings. He locks himself into the limitations of people, puts on flesh and blood. I just want you to imagine for a moment what it must have been like to be a 12-year-old Jesus or four years old or six years old. This is God in human flesh humiliating himself to 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 a great point in order to be with his people. How is that even possible? And this is what the... Some of the classic carols are trying to get at when they say things like, What child is this? Who's laid to rest on Mary's lap sleeping. This is Christ the King. From shepherds guard and angels sing in another line, hail, hail the word of god made flesh but again we go back to the original question okay nobody in all of human history could save people and god himself had to come down and save those very people but the question remains why did he come why was he born and what do we need to be saved from And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a number of things that God came to save and restore and redeem. But none of those things are going to make any sense unless we get this thing. And the gospel writer Matthew says it in clear and succinct terms. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you... uh You might be hearing this word sin, and you might even be bristling at the concept of it. Maybe it comes with a lot of baggage for you. Maybe that word has been used to beat you over the head. Maybe that word has been used to just refer to a bunch of things uh, that people disapprove of in your life. Maybe you feel like uh, a bird that just needs to be uncaged and free. And the concept of sin goes against your idea of freedom and autonomy. There's a lot of things. Sin is a hard and difficult concept for our culture to wrap its heart around because the truth is our culture relativizes sin. And when I say sin, uh, in the most simple terms, it's doing or living in a way that is contrary to the will of God. Right? Our culture relativizes that idea. In other words, it says, well, sin is not a big deal. We're making it a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. There's so much stuff happening in the world that is worse than what I'm doing right now. No big deal. It's just a little pride, just a little envy, just a little cheating, just a little, uh, just a little anger. We might say, it's not a big deal to me, so why should it be a big deal to anyone else? And why should it be a big deal to God? Our culture doesn't just relativize sin, but it also, in some sense, privatizes it, right? Not only is it not a big deal, but it's not your business or God's business. It's just mine. If I'm doing something that isn't hurting anybody else, why should it be a big deal to God or anybody else? It's relative and it's privatized. But when we look at the scriptures, it's not so relative to God. For good reason, as I hope you see. Sin is a big deal. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that it started with a single action. But that single action was just a symptom of the heart. In Adam and Eve, we could say, that were in rebellion against God's way of doing things. It's essentially the human person saying, I am a better God than God. So we might even be caught up with this thing called sin, saying sin is, an, uh, is individual acts, and it certainly is, but it's also more than that. It's a condition. It's a sickness. Those individual acts are symptoms of something that is deep down within And what we saw in Genesis is that that mentality, I am rebelling against God's way of doing things. I don't want your rule and reign in my life. That gives way to separation between God and people. And it is that separation that is the reason for so much turmoil in the world today. Sin is the reason for so much turmoil and chaos and hurt and pain around us but also inside of us. So to God, sin is a big deal. Not only because it is an affront to His holiness and glory, but because He loves us, He created us, and sin at the end of the day destroys us, whether we relativize it or not. The prophet Isaiah, in his 59th chapter, attempting to curb our attempt of trying to be defensive and project our problems onto God and others says this. He says, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you. Nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. It is your rebellion against God that has cut you off from the goodness and the love of God. Now you might stop right there, and you might ask, well, that in itself, that doesn't make sense. Like, if God is love, why why would my sin cut me off from him? Why doesn't he just accept me in my sin, since my sin isn't as bad as that other person over there? I hope that, uh, just by way of an illustration, that this might make sense of some of the, the things that God says here that we're looking at. Uh, You know how it rained a a couple, I think a week ago, was it last week? It was wonderful, right? Just listening to the rain. Um, That rain turned the dirt in our yard into mud. And I have these two kids, Abigail, she's four, Jude, he's two. And they love to play outside. And as it rained, Abby did her own thing, but Jude has this thing about dirt. Like, when the the book of Genesis says that we are created out of the dust of the earth, I take that quite literally, because Jude, like, he goes out into the backyard, and he's like, my origins, yeah, and he just smears his face with the dirt, and he's rolling in it, and just wallowing around, eating it, like, all of that stuff, like, he just loves the dirt. He becomes one with the dirt. Now, that's all fine until, you know, Brianna calls our kids for lunch, and they come to the door, and guess who's waiting at the door? Brianna, Mama. And she says to both of them, you can't come in here with those muddy shoes. Now it doesn't even, it's not even just them. Like I could come to the door, like from my clean car, and I'm not muddy, and she'll be at the door saying, you can't come in here with those shoes, tracking your dirt over my carpets. And the same would go for any of you that came to my house with your shoes on. Got to take your shoes off to come into the house. Now, Brianna loves Abby and Jude, right? She loves them dearly. Does she love me? I think so. (laughs) It has nothing to do with whether she loves me or our kids or not. It has to do with with the cleanliness of her house. And she loves us, but we can't come into her clean house with our mud and our dirt. You see, God loves you too. He loves people. He loves the human race. But in addition to being loving, he's also holy and pure and good. And sin is the antithesis. It's the antithesis of all that is good in God's world. And he loves you and he loves me, but he will not allow sin into his heaven. So how do you fix that? Well, to further the illustration a little bit. Let's say you come to my my place and you get to the door and you're like, oh, no problem. I'm going to wipe my shoes off on this doormat. Wipe your shoes off, step into the door. Guess who's going to be meeting you at the door? Brianna. She's going to say, that's not enough. You can't just wipe the dirt off your shoes. And you might try to clean the mud off your shoes. And by the way, that's what Israel did for thousands of years. Try to get the mud off of their shoes through temple sacrifices. And this is something that God told them to do, offer these animal sacrifices. But he never intended for them to do away with their sin. In fact, the author in Hebrews would tell us that the blood of bulls and goats is not enough to remove sin. It's only able to cover them temporarily. And so they would always have to be doing this, always offering sacrifices uh, in the temple for their sins. It was never able to. To wipe away their sins, it was only temporary. Maybe we, in the same way, as the Israelites did with temple sacrifices, or some of us do with wiping our shoes, maybe we do that with our relationship with God. Maybe you might say, well, yeah, I have sin, but it's not really that bad if you think about it. Maybe we try to justify what's wrong in our lives. Maybe we try to elevate it or give it some sense of justification. Well, the reason I did that was this. And you can't fault me for that, right? Well, the reason I do this is because of my upbringing. Well, the reason I do this is because of that. Or maybe the way that you wipe your shoes off at the door of God's heaven is by uh, presenting a balance. Maybe you'd say, oh, yeah, actually, I can't justify my sin. I've actually got a lot of uh, junk in me. But maybe if I do enough good things, it will kind of reset the balance. Maybe God is like a God of balance. I've got some sin, but maybe if I have enough good works, it will kind of balance the system. Maybe you do it by comparing yourself to others. Maybe you're like, yeah, I'm kind of a bad person, but I'm not as bad as some people like. You should check out this one guy, Chris Lazo. That is a real doozy, you know. I was over at his place, and they were playing Christmas carols in November. Sinner. And maybe you do it by way of comparison. Well, I'm not that bad. Or I, I have a reason for this. Or maybe if I do enough good things, I can clean my feet off. To complete the analogy, Brianna would simply say to you at the door, you've got to take your shoes off. Shoes must be removed. And this is the underlying testimony of God's relationship with all of humanity throughout the Scriptures. Your sin must be dealt with, and it must be removed. You can't polish it. You can't make it look better. You can't fool God, and you can't come into his heavenly kingdom with it. Your sin must be removed. None of our methods of making ourselves better are good enough. We need a better Joshua. So what does Christmas have to do with all of this? How does Jesus' birth save you and I from our dirty feet, so to speak, our sin? One, Jesus would come in on the scene with a promise that no one else has been able to fulfill up until this point. And we see it very clearly when he was uh, of adult age and he started his earthly ministry and he walked down to where his cousin John The Baptist was doing uh, baptisms and he approached John and John saw him out of the corner of his eye. And you remember what he said? He stopped everything and he said, listen, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have to put yourself in the shoes of every Jewish person that was down there getting baptized on that day who is vividly used to offering sacrifices that could not take away their sin, they only covered them for a temporary time. And now John, whom they all respect, is saying, it's not a literal lamb that you need, it is this person. This is the true lamb, and he will take away your sins. I imagine every jaw in that river would have dropped to the floor and so should ours. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 when he said that God would send a suffering servant who would bear the sins of many. You might hear that and you say, well, how do you, how do you access that? 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 through 9 says, if we are living in the Spirit, Excuse me, if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, listen to this. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. God doesn't just meet you at the door and say your sins have to be removed. He says, and I will do it for you. God, in the birth of Christ, doesn't just forgive sins. He actually frees you from the power of sin. He doesn't just say it's going to be okay. He makes it okay. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, I love how this reads in the New Living Translation. It says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of sinful nature. The law of Moses basically every command, you can think of it in this way, every command God has ever given. The way that he says things are supposed to be. And what Paul is saying right here is, there's a way God says things are supposed to be, and even though we try to match up to that, it constantly reminds us of how sinful we are because we can never be Perfect. And so when Paul says this, that's what he's saying. He says, no matter how hard we try to obey God's law, we cannot save ourselves. And it's not God's fault. It's not his, the law's fault. God is completely holy. It is the weakness of our sinful nature. But then the next line is perhaps one of the most succinct expressions of the gospel in the Bible. Paul says, so God did what the law could not do. Or another way of saying that is God did what you couldn't do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So he doesn't just forgive us, that would be enough. But he also gives us the power To be outside and free from the control of sin's power. Thirdly, he doesn't just free us from the power of sin. God actually gives us new desires. The prophet Ezekiel would say this. I love this passage. The prophet would say, There's coming a day where God will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will, God is speaking here, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, I'm not just going to forgive you for the things that you've done wrong. I'm not just going to break sin's power over your life. I'm actually going to replace sin's power in your life with holy desires. No longer will you have to fight against the law of Moses. It will spring out of your heart because that's how you were created. And when you obey my commands, you will simply be living into the best version of who you were created to be. You will be your truest self. You will experience true freedom. What Ezekiel was speaking of here is what we call rebirth or being born again. We get that from Jesus who when he was an adult, he was in the secrecy of night, and I think it was John 2 or John 3, speaking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the leader of the religious Pharisees at that time. He was the most religious person in all of Israel. So if you think that uh, salvation comes from doing the right things and thinking the right things and believing the right things, ain't nobody in this world going to be saved before Nicodemus. If anybody can achieve it that way, it was Nicodemus. He was the most self-righteous and the most outwardly righteous of anyone on the planet, except maybe Jesus. And Jesus says to him, it's not enough. Still got your muddy shoes on. What really needs to change here is your heart. And remember what he says? He says, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying this to the leader of Israel's religious party. This is, like, this is like Jesus saying the this, this similar thing to like the leader of the most prominent seminary in the United States. Or a Christian college. Or the biggest, most successful church in the world. He's saying you cannot enter the kingdom of God with what you have. You have to be born again. That's why we sing that popular hymn. That Christ was born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give us second birth. Christmas changes everything. Christmas means that there can be an end to the domination of sin and fracturedness and brokenness in your life. Sin, uh, uh, Christmas means that with an end to the power of sin in your life, there is also an end to your separation from God and all of the despair that that entails christ's birth christmas means that people can once and for all and maybe for the first time in history be set free from the things that drag them down it means that you don't have to be enslaved to the things that you are enslaved to and only you know it means you don't have to fake being a good person anymore put on a face so that when you show up on sunday morning you can appear to be righteous because deep down inside you know that you're not and you don't have to fake it anymore It means you don't have to live in shame anymore because you failed on Saturday and now you're here in a building with people feeling shame because you know that God's love is unfailing and it is directed with laser focus towards those who believe in Him. Christmas means you don't have to run from God anymore. In fact, perhaps a rudimentary summary of what the Christmas message is is that God ran to you. And the very thing we need saving from is not outside of us, it's deep within. And for the Christmas message, the Christmas gospel, to move beyond commercialism and festivities and happy hugs and presents onto a deeper level, each of us needs to face it for what it is and to be confronted By the story itself. And to say at the end of the story. I truly am empty apart from Jesus Christ. I am truly broken apart from Jesus Christ. But I thank you, Lord, that I don't have to be. And through faith and not through your works. Responding to the love that has been bestowed upon you in this thing that we call Christmas. There is nothing that any of you can do to play church that will be enough to pull you out of the mess that the Bible says you're in apart from Him. The only thing that we can truly do is to respond with our brokenness and with our faith and to say, yes, Lord, I receive all that you have done. And that present is available to all without strings. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up today. And I would ask you that you would return back to meditation if you're not there already. Because we can just get so easily caught in the cycle of Christmas means this, this, and this. I've heard this all before. Go through the motions. Adopt the cultural busyness we forget. And I love Sunday mornings because it's like one of the only times in the week where I can pull you guys out of the mess. and Make you stuck in seats for two hours. Maybe some of you are listening to this and you're bored. Praise God. This might be the only two hours in your week that you get to sit bored. And as you're sitting there, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you today. How does this truth change you? And do you believe that you need saving? Whether you're not a Christian or maybe you don't even know that you are, Maybe you've been one for 30 years. Return to the joy of your salvation and allow the thrill of hope to thrill you again. Lord, help us today to respond to all that you have done and all that you have accomplished. And may we too today be like the shepherds the least of all the people who got a front row seat to sit at the birth of Jesus, who's not just like any child, not just like any baby, but this truly was Christ the King. And may we know the King today in a deeper way than we ever have before. And may you renew in our hearts a love for God that not only takes control of our affections but our minds our bodies our ambitions our marriages our singleness our relationships the way that we approach life may we be completely and utterly captivated thrilled entranced and directed by the gospel of our lord jesus feels so casual and trivial to say this but lord on behalf of us all, thank you for coming. Thank you for being our Savior. May you continue to save and to open our eyes to more. In Jesus' name.